This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm sure you have some cosmic rationale, but you will come to a place where the only thing you feel are loaded guns in your face, and you'll have to deal with pressure. In the aftermath of the Voscarician shooting, Captain Borelli had been assigned a partner to help investigate and apprehend the 44 caliber killer. This partner was a man who would go on to achieve legendary status among the ranks of the NYPD. His name was Detective Sergeant Joseph Coffey. Coffey was considered the quintessential New York Irish cop. He was tall and handsome, tough as nails, smart as a whip, and operated from a place of investigative acumen and gut instinct. His career would include several high-profile mafia cases, including arresting mob boss John Gotti a bunch of times. He investigated the infamous Lufthansa heist that was highlighted in the movie Goodfellas, as well as an additional mafia case that would eventually implicate a Vatican banker. This guy even danced with First Lady Nancy Reagan at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel while on duty. And after his retirement from the NYPD and considering his long resume regarding prosecution of members of the city's five families, Detective Coffey was invited to join the State Organized Crime Task Force. But before his involvement in some of the biggest cases in New York's history, through the 80s and beyond, Coffey made his name as a key member of Operation Omega, the task force created to find and capture the serial killer known as Son of Sam. Welcome back to The Devil Within, A Season in Hell. You're listening to Episode 5, Pressure. Mayor Beam knew things had gotten bad and were in danger of spiraling out of control. The police were already engaging in several unorthodox procedures in efforts to save lives. Young lovers in parked cars were told to leave frequently visited lovers' lanes sections of the city. Female officers with dark hair were used as bait, sitting in cars surrounded by hidden police officers to ensure their safety. Even members of the mafia were contacted for help. But more on that later. None of it worked. Then, after the Suriani Esau shooting and the discovery of the first letter, the decision was made to form Operation Omega. This would, uh, in essence, put approximately a total of 300 of police personnel on a constant, full-time basis just for this investigation. The man chosen to lead what would become the largest manhunt in the history of New York City and also attract the very best detectives and patrol officers the NYPD had to offer was another Irish cop, Deputy Inspector Timothy J. Dowd. The task force began with 50 detectives and other support staff, but would quickly grow to more than 300 dedicated members of the NYPD. This is headquarters for one of the most intense manhunts in the history of New York. 
search for the 44 caliber killer. Operating out of this office, over 50 of the city's best detectives pour over clues and run down leads. All right, so he, see, he saw the composite and he may know the identity. Okay, he states that this informant has been reliable in the past, huh? On the wall are snapshots of the victims, most of them pretty girls with long, dark hair, and photos of the murder scenes, the parked cars and lonely sidewalks where the killer has struck in post-midnight hours. Here, too, police are trying to trace the ownership of every snub-nosed 44 in the country, an estimated 28,000 guns. Born in Ireland in 1915, young Timothy Dowd moved to America with his parents when he was a teenager in the middle of the Great Depression. After college, he joined the NYPD in 1940, first as a mounted police officer, then as a detective in the homicide and narcotics squads. By the spring of 1977, the city needed a miracle. And with the limited resources remaining, Dowd was tapped to create one. As Inspector Dowd's second in command, Captain Borelli would be the most forward-facing member of Operation Omega. He would handle the press conferences for the most part, he would provide updates, and he was in charge of assigning senior detectives to specific duties. The NYPD Chief of Detectives, John Keenan, was tapped to lead the manhunt, and that's where Detective Coffey comes in. Coffey, Borelli, and Keenan handled the majority of the investigative work, running down leads, processing crime scenes, analyzing ballistics reports. They were dedicated, obsessed, and relentless. They were also flying blind. He's still an elusive character, but in the sense that uh, we, uh, we have a, a large force of detectives doing an investigation on the case, uh, and in the sense that we're getting a lot of information and bits and leads from the public uh, we, we feel that we're making ground, we're, we're covering ground, and we're gaining, we're gaining some, make, making progress in the case. Since we, we organized the task force, we have received about 2,800 bits of information, telephone calls, letters, from, and visits from people. Uh, many of these, of course, were discarded after initial investigation, but, but uh, there are a number of people who we are, we are still interested in, uh, and we are uh, keeping tabs on them. The only proactive step they could hope to take would be in the immediate aftermath of a shooting they suspected to be the work of Son of Sam. They would have a special call over police radio that went citywide. Code 44. They knew the killer used a Charter Arms 44 caliber revolver. They were relatively certain that the killer was a man, and they were equally as certain that he was targeting young women seemingly at random. He had thus far contained his hunting grounds to the Bronx and Queens boroughs of the city. But again, the random nature of his attacks and the completely unrelated victims made it impossible for law enforcement to do anything except to just do their best to blanket the city with cops and implore the public to be smart with how they lived their lives. Man, it's, it's everybody. It's not you, it's everybody. That's all we're trying to do. Well, nobody Fine. wants to embarrass you for nothing, okay? Fine. I'll take that from, from what it's worth, and I, I can't agree We have to that. do our job this way. It's tough. We never did it this way. we got to do it this way now. And I understand okay? Fine. It was another false alarm in a case that's produced hundreds of false alarms, but each has to be checked out in 
the hope that the 44 caliber killer can be stopped before he strikes again. Jimmy Breslin was a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Daily News. A champion of the working class in New York and across the country, one of Breslin's most famous pieces was published the day after assassinated President John F. Kennedy's funeral. But it was, brilliantly, an expose on the man who dug Kennedy's grave. He was also the author of more than a dozen books, plays, and screenplays. He appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He acted in films. In 1969, Breslin unsuccessfully ran for president of the New York City Council on the platform that the city should secede from the rest of the state. The campaign slogan was, Vote the Rascals In. By 1977, Breslin, along with every other journalist in New York, was writing about the 44 caliber killer, only recently renamed the Son of Sam. Maybe it was Breslin's appeal to the common man, or maybe it was the fact that several years earlier, Breslin had written an article that was critical about a member of the Lucchese crime family and was viciously beaten. Whatever the reason, the second letter David Berkowitz would write taunting the police and the city at large would be addressed to Jimmy Breslin and mailed to him at his office. Hello from the cracks and the sidewalks in New York City and the ants that dwell in the cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. Hello from the gutters of New York City which is filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Don't think because you haven't heard from me that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. Sam's a thirsty lad. He won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria. And you can't let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Miss Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation. Number 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by the NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. They have everything on computer. Everything. They might as well, you know, turn up from all the crimes. And maybe, maybe they could make associations. Duke of Death, you know, Wicked King Wickler, uh, the 22 Disciples of Hell. <laughs> and lastly, John Wheaties. 
rapist and suffocator of young girls. P.S. Drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on some coffins, etc., etc. Mr. Breslin immediately notified Operation Omega and handed over the letter. Not convinced it was from the actual killer, but relatively certain it was at least from someone with direct knowledge of the attacks, Jimmy Breslin saw the potential to corner the market on the public's fear and fascination with the Son of Sam. Captain Borelli and Chief Keenan went to work deciphering the cryptic, almost poetic missive. It was significantly different from the previous letter left at the scene of the Esau Suriani shooting, where the first letter was crude and sophomoric with misspellings and assertions of victimhood. The letter to Breslin almost seemed elevated, with grotesque imagery, proper grammar, and an early artistic structure of repetition meant to engage the reader. Hello from the gutters, hello from the sewers, hello from the cracks in the sidewalks. After a professional courtesy from Breslin to hold publication of the letter so the police could do their analysis, the Daily News printed a slightly redacted version of the original, holding back on a few key details that only the author would know. A practice common in law enforcement that allows them the ability to be absolutely sure they eventually arrest the right guy. The issue of the Daily News that contained the second Son of Sam letter, along with a sensational piece by Breslin, would go on to be the single best-selling daily edition in the history of the city. However, not everyone was pleased with how Breslin handled the situation. Uh, Breslin and other people, there was a symbiosis with the police. I think uh, very often, I think in explaining why that original letter was published in the news, which I have a lot of problems with, it's the police... Uh, you have problems with publishing that letter? Then no, obviously you're not in the news business. Well, it's like saying, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, not a prostitute. On. What do you want me to say? Well, I mean, I, well, I, 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 you've already said you're not in the news business. That, we, that we've if just determined. If you have no problems, if you have no problems... With this well, thing. then what should we do? Not write? I think you read a good deal oh, too much about that? it. Yeah. But Come on, instance. stop playing games with me. No, there's no games there was playing. A letter, Look at these there was headlines around. Do you think that there was no exaggeration of this Come case on. at all? Work a little bit in the business, then come back and talk. You, you want to know about publishing that letter? You think that the, is there some question that that letter shouldn't have been published? Is, is, is that the problem here? A yeah. letter from Berkowitz to Breslin shouldn't have been published. Well, I'm not sure that I'm ready to say that. I am ready to, to ask, though, mm. once the police start saying, Publish this and don't publish oh, that. Here's, here's exactly don't tell them about the, I'll tell you exactly the, the fingerprint. For the example. fingerprint we held out. Right. No question about it. The main point of concern for detectives with regard to the content of this latest communication from the Son of Sam was the mention of a specific date. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? The reference is to the date of the first shooting. July 29th of 1976 was the night Donna Loria was shot and killed and her friend Jody Valenti was wounded as they sat in Valenti's car in the Pelham Bay neighborhood of the Bronx. It seemed clear to everyone involved that the killer had something planned to mark the anniversary of his crime spree. There was also that list of names included that were offered as clues to help the police in finding the murderer before he struck again. Because... As stated clearly in the letter, you will see my handiwork on the
on the next job. So with all the dark poetry of the early section of the letter, followed by the ramblings about Sam the father and the threat of suicide by police, what was clear was that the son of Sam was still at large, still committed to wreaking havoc on New York, and most likely had something major planned for the first anniversary of his first murder. Operation Omega decided to put the ball in the air, as it were, and throw up a Hail Mary. From my understanding, one of the first suspects in the case was a Lucchese family associate who was the ex-boyfriend of, of one of the early victims, Donna Loria. You know, and this is primarily going on in the Bronx. Uh, the Bronx is uh, the Lucchese family. So I, I, they probably looked hard and leaned hard on, on who their informants were at the time about that. Um, but again, it's one of those things where this is a random crime. You have Berkowitz, if he's not you know, working at the post office or stalking victims sitting in their cars, he's probably writing something on his, the walls of his apartment. You know, I don't think he associated with anyone. He's not the type of guy that's going to be down at the bar talking where, where my informant might overhear this or that. So really, ultimately, you know, informants in this case just were ineffective. Well, I'm Stuart Fillmore. I'm a retired FBI agent. I spent 29 years in the FBI. I went in right out of school. In those days, they really didn't want a whole lot of experience because the thought process was, if you need to uh, learn something, we're happy to teach you. So they wanted you basically kind of young, stupid, and moldable. When the mafia first started, what we think of as the mafia, you know, the five families in New York, it goes back way further than that. The first members of La Cosa Nostra arrived in New York City in the early 1920s. They had left Sicily in the 1800s and entered America through the city of New Orleans and within a few generations had organized to the point that expansion to the great cities of the Northeast was the only move that made sense. Really what, what the start of where the mafia as we know it and as, as portrayed in the movies comes from, there were two old Sicilian guys named Salvatore Maranzano and Joe Masseria and they were old school Sicilians that uh, did not want to deal with anyone that wasn't Italian. Certainly, they wouldn't have anyone in their families that were not Italians and probably Sicilian as well. And the younger generation of American, Italian Americans that were growing up or that maybe had immigrated here earlier or were born here, uh, they, I think, saw that as somewhat as limited in, in thinking. And so there was a guy named Charles Luciano, as we know as Lucky Luciano, who was in the Masseria family, and he engineered the killing of Masseria. And if you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, the scene where Michael Corleone is meeting with the police captain and Virgil Salazzo, the Turk. different, but Lucky Luciano had set up a lunch for Masseria and several of their friends at Masseria's favorite Italian restaurant on Coney Island. And they're all uh, having lunch and playing poker. And Luciano excuses himself, goes to the bathroom. And when he's in the bathroom is when some of his friends, one of which was uh, Bugsy Siegel, they come in and kill Masseria. 
There's a famous photograph you've ever seen of a bloody hand holding the ace of spades in its fingers. That's Joe Masseria. The other Sicilian boss at the time, Salvatore Maranzano, he forms what's called the five families, or he, he forms that structure, and he sets himself up as the boss of bosses. By 1931, Salvatore Maranzano, the capo de tutti i capi, or the boss of all bosses, had won the so-called Castellamarese War, a brutal power struggle for control of all American mafia business. When the dust had settled, Maranzano had divided the remaining mafioso into the five families. Colombo, Genovese, Lucchese, Bonanno, and Gambino. Territory across the boroughs would be divided equally in order to avoid hostilities in the future. Luciano, who was uh, ambitious, cunning, and willing to obviously take out those that had power, he now engineers about five months later the, the murder of Salvatore Maranzano. So after Maranzano's dead, Luciano forms what's called the commission. And rather than call himself the boss of bosses, he just basically kind of becomes the chairman of the board, uh, sets it up like a board of directors. Territory is allocated, disputes and turf wars and those kind of things will be settled by the commission and that they will do this to effectively run organized crime as a business, which makes it ultimately more profitable because they're not spending all their time and energy trying to kill each other. I love to cook. And even more, I love to cook with my family. I have young kids, and I'm super busy, so I'll take whatever help I can get. And that's where HelloFresh comes in. I recently signed up for their meal delivery service, and honestly, I have no idea why I waited so long. Look, everyone's making resolutions this time of year, and if one of yours is more family time around the table, may I recommend the HelloFresh family-friendly meal plan. Each box comes to your doorstep with pre-portioned farm-fresh ingredients and easy-to-follow instructions. I just had my kids help me prepare the cheesy garlic and herb chicken parmesan. Now, I'm from Jersey, and when something is out of this world delicious, we say, forget about it. Okay, the HelloFresh cheesy garlic and herb chicken parmesan? Forget about it. Why not give America's number one meal kit a try? You'll have less hassle, you'll save time, and you'll have less wasted food. And here's the best part. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DevilWithinFree and use code DevilWithinFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash DevilWithinFree with code DevilWithinFree. What Maranzano or even Lucky Luciano, could never have imagined, was that decades later, a guy like David Berkowitz would show up. He wasn't the type of threat that they were used to. He wasn't law enforcement getting too close. He didn't represent some new facet of organized crime. Berkowitz was a maniac who roamed the outer boroughs, which happened to be mob territory, killing, apparently indiscriminately, Berkowitz equaled more cops on the street, and more cops was bad for business. That is, if your business happened to be crime. It was one of the few times in history where the interests of the mob aligned with the interests of law enforcement. 
They both needed Son of Sam off the streets. The police made the first move with a diplomatic mission into the heart of the Colombo crime family's territory in Brooklyn. We had formalized informants, people that we talked to that there was an absolute documented uh, relationship with of what they told us that ultimately so that we could use this in court. And there were other, just in the course of working on the street, you encounter people that uh, no doubt are involved in some kind of crime. They have knowledge of it, but you don't necessarily have a specific case against them. But you, in whatever circumstance, whatever reason, you encounter them, you talk to them, just maybe in a friendly manner. uh, And this is just my own term. We call them hip pocket informants. That's just somebody that you could just roll up to and talk to, just like you said, like two guys standing on the corner. They don't want some serial killer out there any more than the police do. For the most part, and there are exceptions, but for the most part, the mafia wants things operating just smooth as as silk, and they want to operate under the radar. And so they don't want the cops coming around nosing into things because they're looking for this crazy serial killer. So if they can help, certainly that's something that uh, that may be a future benefit they could have. So, yeah, both through the formal informants as well as just your hip pocket sources uh, that just from time to time will tell you this or that. There was never anything official on the books, but stories have leaked out over the decades, especially as it deals with a certain capo of the Colombo family, Michael Francesi. Son of underboss Sonny Francesi, Michael would become an important capo in the family structure and one of the best earners in mafia history. At his height, it was reported that he was bringing in more than $8 million per week. But it was a clandestine meeting with an unnamed member of Operation Omega that we're concerned with. It was mid-June of 1977. By this time, all street-level soldiers and associates within the five families were aware of the trouble that Son of Sam was causing and how it was affecting the bottom line of the entire American organized crime collective. And... While they were never given specific orders to whack the guy, if they happened to come across him, it wouldn't be frowned upon within the organization if he wound up dead. But then Francesi met with a detective from the task force and they put their heads together. No way a guy like this should be able to operate in mob-run neighborhoods. They needed to tighten up. They needed to get their shit together and either neutralize him or flush him out into the open. The message was received, loud and clear. Son of Sam needed to be taken care of by any means necessary, and no questions asked. And believe it or not, official law enforcement mafia collabs date back to World War II. The government and the mob first started working together. It involved suspected sabotage of a ship the Normandy that was at New York Harbor and naval intelligence went to the mafia and to try to say, Hey, we can't have the sabotage going on. Can you help us out? And sure enough, the mafia was not part of any sabotage on the Normandy, which had actually burned while in Harbor, but they were happy to pretend like they might've known something about it in exchange for getting lucky Luciano a commuted sentence. Luciano by that time was in jail for, for pimping. It turns out there were no strikes, worker strikes, or sabotage that occurred during the remainder of World War II. That, that is the first incident that I know of where the mafia and the, and the government officially worked together for the common good. The Columbus Territory is primarily Brooklyn. The Gambino family controls Queens. And the Bronx belongs to the Lucchese's. So far, the killer kept to the Bronx and Queens. But with this 
temporary, specifically focused alliance with the police, territorial trespass would be forgiven as it related to finding the killer. The word was spread. Yellow or maybe gold Ford Galaxy, pudgy guy with thick black hair, and what the news reports, you remember, very weirdly called a sensuous mouth. Dark, wavy hair, high cheekbones, and a sensuous mouth. As spring turned to summer in 1977, it promised to be a scorcher. Temperatures were soaring, anxiety had gripped the citizens like a fever, and the whole city was a powder keg poised to blow. And still, David Berkowitz hunted without pause, without fear, and without remorse. You know, frankly, the mafia is up against the same things that the cops were in that you have just this random this random guy that's kind of a, a loner uh, that, you know, could could strike anywhere. And so and it could be anybody. Uh, the word he kept using was he hunted. hunted. And, and he hunted apparently 30 nights a month. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he only struck once every 40 days on the average or 45 days was just, you know, our good fortune because he was mm-hmm. out every night mm-hmm. looking. According to an anonymous member of the Colombo crime family, sometime in late June of 1977, they had Berkowitz trapped in Brooklyn. As stated, up to this point, David had steered clear of Brooklyn and contained his attacks to the Bronx and Queens, never straying into the Colombo territory. Perhaps less out of fear of that particular organization and more from a lack of familiarity with that borough. Either way, Brooklyn had seemed safe up to this point, and the Colombo family was determined to keep it that way. The first night, one of their soldiers spotted a yellow Ford Galaxy slowly cruising a residential neighborhood where there happened to be a family-run bedding parlor. They thought nothing of it. And for the record, I'm not using the term soldier colloquially. A soldier is an actual rank or position in a mafia organization. So we had a specific block of instruction on the mafia. And the instructor was talking about how the mafia is set up, what the structure of it is. And he said, you know, you can think of the mafia, you have a boss, uh, the boss has a conciliary, you know, a, a legal advisor. Under there is, is the underboss. And then you have the, the capos, uh, the captains, and they run a crew. And then the crew uh, is made up of soldiers and the soldiers work with associates. He said, if you're having trouble envisioning this, it's very similar to the way the FBI is set up. In an FBI office, you have a special agent in charge who has a principal legal advisor. Under the SAC, you have uh, an ASAC, which is an assistant special agent in charge, and there could be several of them. Under the ASAC, you have supervisors who run squads. The squads have agents in them. Agents then work cases and they work informants. So the agent himself was, was the equivalent of, of a mafia soldier and then on up. So the structure was very similar. <laughs> so that's what I was laughing about when you said the ranks of the of the mafia. Very similar. Yes, I mean, it, it, that's one reason it's called organized crime. It, it, it is organized. It's structured. Yeah. Associates aren't officially members of the family. I'm sure they would like to be, but they can't be because they're not full-blooded Italian. That's mob law. Associates are people that are have not been officially brought into the mafia uh, as what are called made men. The best example is if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas. So it, there's three main characters in Goodfellas. It's uh, the Joe Pesci character, the Ray Liotta character, and the Robert De Niro character. The only one of those three that is that's full Sicilian, full Italian, is the Joe Pesci character. 
But Jimmy and I could never be made because we had Irish blood. It didn't even matter that my mother was Sicilian. To become a member of a crew, you've got to be 100% Italian so they can trace all your relatives back to the old country. Uh, Ray Liotta, who plays Henry Hill, Henry and the De Niro character, who was based on a real-life guy named Jimmy Burke, they could never be technically in the mafia. They were just associates of the mafia. But they still operated just the same. They went out, committed all the same crimes, kicked all that money uh, you know, up the chain. Uh, and operated under the the authority, I guess you could say, of the uh, Lucchese family. Soldiers are the guys who do all the heavy lifting. They're on the streets, earning, gathering intel, keeping people in line, setting up scores, collecting, making payoffs, and generally protecting the territory. So at this point, in the late spring or early summer of 1977, law enforcement wasn't aware of Berkowitz's modus operandi. They didn't know he was out hunting every night, usually in a specific area he had been commanded to target, patrolling until the signs presented themselves. But it appears some Colombo soldiers figured it out. Handling low-key security outside a residential, illegal betting parlor amounted to what appeared to be couple of Italian guys sitting on a stoop in Brooklyn. That's how it would look to anyone driving by, especially the cops. That's probably also how it looked to Berkowitz. However, by the third night, these soldiers realized that this yellow Ford Galaxy, driven by a pudgy guy with dark hair, just might be the son of Sam. According to a statement by Francesi, after the police reached out and asked for help, we can assume all of the five families were contacted. Francesi's soldiers actually had Berkowitz pinned down by means of a gangster's dragnet of sorts, somewhere in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood in Brooklyn. But Berkowitz was able to slip through and escape. It seems David decided that Brooklyn wasn't the best hunting grounds for now and decided to retreat to more familiar environs. Heading east on the Grand Central Parkway out of Forest Hills, and then taking 295 north. It's about 20 minutes to Bayside, Queens. With traffic, who knows, it could take days. When Operation Omega reached out to the Mafia for help in solving their mutual Berkowitz problem, the world was only five years removed from the release of the iconic film The Godfather. And incredibly, law enforcement was seeing and hearing an irrefutable influence. The Godfather is the famous movie about the Mafia versus Goodfellas. You know, in The Godfather, it portrays the Mafia as this honorable system, you know, that we have loyalty and we have honor and we, you know, we maintain this, this code of omerta and we protect each other. Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you, but don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again, ever. That, I think that movie actually resonated, and a lot of real mafia wise guys actually thought that movie was great and in some ways tried to emulate it, you know. Agents listening in on wiretaps noted a distinct shift in how mafia members spoke to each other, very obviously mimicking the heightened, gentlemanly, honor among thieves style of communicating made famous by Brando and Pacino, echoing the elegant language of the great Mario Puzo and his book of the same name that the film is based on. How did things ever get so far? I don't know. 
was so unfortunate, so unnecessary. The day you lost the son, I lost the son. We're quits. And if the tally agrees, then I'm willing to let things go on the way they were before. We are all grateful to Don Corleone for calling this meeting. We all know him as a man of his word. A modest man. He'll always listen to reason. Real-life mobsters wanted to be more like the movie stars playing make-believe. As mentioned earlier, despite the imminent threat to young people having fun, young people in New York still decided to have fun. In a neighborhood of the Bronx called Pelham Bay, and in Forest Hills near the famous tennis club, the killer has struck six times since last summer, and five are dead. Most of them pretty young women, shot at close range on the sidewalk or in parked cars. 18-year-old Donna Loria was the first, killed last July. Then Christina Freund, 26, a secretary, killed in January. Virginia Voscarician, a 20-year-old co-ed, killed in March. And Valentina Suriani, 20, killed with her boyfriend, Alexander Esau, in April. In each case, the killer used a gun similar to this, a modern version of the old 44 caliber pistol used in the days of the Wild West. The killer has taunted authorities by writing two letters. Police are convinced the letters are real. Both were signed, Son of Sam. One was left for police, the other was sent to Jimmy Breslin, a widely read columnist for the New York Daily News. In Bayside, Queens, on Northern Boulevard at Main Street, stood a single-story building with a faux stone facade that housed an establishment called Humperdinck's Supper Club. Really, Humperdinck's Supper Club. Now, supper clubs became popular in the Midwest in the 1940s. They're basically a traditional restaurant but with the understanding that no one was in a hurry. You're invited to take your time, linger, maybe take in a live band. It was a restaurant that was also a social club. They were a hit with the returning World War II buttoned-up 1950s generation of young adults. But as the flower children of the 60s grew into baby boomers, it was all about dancing. Supper clubs started to fade from the American landscape and Humperdinck's in Bayside became a thriving discotheque called Elephus. On the night of Saturday, June 25, 1977, 17-year-old Judy Placido, a recent high school graduate, and her boyfriend, Salvatore Lupo, a mechanic, went out for a night of dancing at Elephus. They were aware of the danger. They were warned by family and loved ones to stay in, or at the very least, no makeout sessions in the car afterwards. Judy even mentioned the danger posed by Son of Sam several times to Sal during their evening together. But looking around the dance club, packed with young people enjoying themselves, those worries seemed a world away. But a monster was in the neighborhood, circling and waiting. But guess who else was there? Not the mafia soldiers. It was Detective Coffee. He was charged with the Northwest Queen section of the city to patrol that night, hoping for that lucky break that every cop knew would be the only way to catch Son of Sam. Coffee had actually been in the parking lot of the dance club just before midnight on the 25th, but he hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary. 
No yellow Ford Galaxy prowling the streets. Although I'm sure there were several men who fit the description of the killer, what was Coffey going to do? Arrest them all? After a few trips around the block, he saw nothing suspicious at the club and continued with his patrol. But Coffey wasn't the only one circling that night. Berkowitz had been on the hunt since early that evening. His command had been to find one of these young girls who had the gall to go out dancing despite the imminent threat of a killer on the streets. His master, Sam, told him to go back to Queens and find a place where young people danced. He had circled for hours before the signs began. Sometime after 2 a.m. on Sunday, the 26th of June, Judy and Sal left the Elephus discotheque and got into Sal's car, which was parked just down the block on a residential street near the club. As things were beginning to get physical between the two young lovers around 3 a.m., there was a sudden explosion of sound, shattered glass, and blood as shots rang out, fired from an unknown assailant. Sal Lupo was hit in the right forearm, while Judy Placido got the worst of it, getting hit in her right temple, neck, and right shoulder. Neither victim caught even a glimpse of their attacker, but two bystanders reported to police that they witnessed a tall, black-haired man wearing a leisure suit, running from the area and driving off. Detective Coffey couldn't believe it when the call came in. He had just been in Bayside and right in front of the club where the victims had spent their evening. He acted quickly and put out the call. Code 44. Police checkpoints went up almost instantly on all major thoroughfares out of the area. And man, they almost got him. Berkowitz was running on pure adrenaline. He knew he had delivered another pretty young girl for his master, Sam. And he knew the area well. From Bayside, it was easy to hop on 295 North over the Throg's Neck, then 95 North to the Cross County Parkway West and home into Yonkers. There would be close to zero traffic at this time of night. He'd be home in 20 minutes. But Detective Coffey moved so fast with his Code 44 call that by the time Berkowitz was approaching the causeway to the Throg's Neck, there was a checkpoint. Police were asking questions, looking for the man who just shot two people outside the Elephus Discotheque in Queens. David kept his cool as he approached the two female officers and presented his ID. Where was he coming from so late at night, they asked. Luckily for David, he had once been employed as a security guard, a night watchman for a company called IBI Security. He still had the ID card, and it was enough of a story, enough of an explanation to get him through the checkpoint and on his way. Although the police were no closer to catching him, that encounter with law enforcement made Berkowitz believe that they were indeed closing in. Sam the Master wouldn't give him a moment's rest, he knew that. He was tired. He wanted to be released from this obsession. And although he was mostly bluffing when he hinted at something dramatic occurring on the anniversary of his deadly spree, he now decided that he had earned a truly special final act. 
but what was it to be? On the final episode of The Devil Within, A Season in Hell, David Berkowitz plans his greatest show yet, but can't resist the hunt in the meantime. And then, all of a sudden, the lights went out. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.